Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 30. I'm Tina Duyev and in accordance with the Labour Party, I have decided to purge listeners from this show based on reasons I've entirely made up and haven't really told anyone. Uh, I will tell you though, uh, some of my reasons include if you've ever said the word plinth aggressively, plinth, a bit like that. Uh, If you've ever known anyone called Gerald, uh, if you ever owned an Aha album on cassette, uh, if you've ever listened to another podcast or you know what a podcast is or you have ever heard the word podcast. So on this week's podcast, oh no, what have I done? I jest. Uh, obviously, I'm allowed to still be on the podcast. And really, you're all welcome to this podcast, regardless of your views. Uh, just do bear in mind, my views are definitely the bestest. Uh, it is conference season. No, I don't mean prime time for pairs, though there were two of them this weekend. Uh, the first was the UKIP conference, which no doubt took place in a very narrow room with no windows, so as not to upset the attendees' blinkered views. Uh, no, sorry, it actually happened in Bournemouth, you know, so all the UKIP members could line up on the shore and watch out for waves of migrants together. This year's opposite of the Future Fest saw Nigel Farage's last ever speech, though sadly only as UKIP leader despite the hopes and dreams of many. Nigel Farage, like someone scrawled a face on a tumour, said that UKIP was like a big dipper, presumably because it's over very quickly and makes many people sick, and that they had won the war on Brexit but must now win the peace, which doesn't really make any sense. Nigel then went on to say how the Conservatives aren't doing enough to get us out of Europe with its unelected bureaucrats, before saying he'd like to nominate an outgoing UKIP chairman for a peerage. Nigel then claimed UKIP had got their country back in the same week the Conservatives gave the go-ahead to a huge UK nuclear power plant owned by China. He also celebrated his last day as UKIP leader by swimming in the sea in just his pants, presumably Nigel's attempt to return the beaches to their disgusting filthy state just like they were before the EU meddled with them. Diane James was announced as the new UKIP leader and has already called for unity within the party because, let's face it, there won't be much unity between them and any outsiders. James is a big fan of Putin, so we can expect her to take the party in a relaxed, inclusive, more liberal direction. Ha! Only joking. It's more likely uh, we should expect homophobic comments and pictures of her riding to meetings topless on a horse. The second conference this weekend was the Liberal Democrats one. Uh, It was held in Brighton, but by the sounds of it, they could have saved a ton of money and just done it on WhatsApp. The conference included such optimistic talks as, will 2080 be the year we get the next Liberal Democrat minister? Which is a stupid question, because as we all know, due to global warming, we'll be completely underwater by 2080 and then under the wrath of Titan the Sea King. Former leader Nick Clegg took to the stage to say, Brexit means Brexit. Have you ever heard a more inane and disingenuous phrase in modern political discourse, uh, causing the crowd to remain quiet, remembering when Nick promised not to raise tuition fees? One of the main lowlights was when the chair of the Cheltenham part of the Liberal Democrat Party questioned why prostitution wasn't given as a career option at schools for pupils, trying to show that the Lib Dems are still right up there with the Tories and Labour when it comes to members that should be investigated by Operation Utree. 
And party leader Tim Farron, a man who, according to an interview with BuzzFeed News, wants to be Britain's Justin Trudeau, which is the sort of tragic statement that's much like hearing a terminally ill child wants to be Spider-Man when they grow up. Tim Farron spent much of the conference appealing to pro-Europe voters. Uh, he said it was utterly despicable for the government to impose on the British people a deal that nobody voted for, completely forgetting that 52% of the population did, in fact, vote for it. Tim Farron insisted that the Lib Dems are in a good place, and with only eight MPs and 8% in the polls, we can presume that he meant Brighton, which, having been there lots, is indeed a good place. The Liberal Democrats might, in fact, be better off just staying there for a very long weekend rather than returning to the bleakness of their empty, empty reality. Thanks, as always, for listening to this podcast. Um, I worry that this is getting boring, uh, me asking you to review the show on iTunes every week. So this week, uh, to put you off doing it even more, I've made a terrible jingle. Why don't you review my show? Please review the show on iTunes. It's much easier thing to do than five temple boons. So please go on and give us five stars so other people know how good I are. Review the show. Go on, review the show. And while you're going to iTunes to rapidly unsubscribe after that, please do give the show a review. You can do it at the same time. And yes, it really does help. Uh, alternatively, if you fancy spreading the word and telling others about the show, perhaps by dropping it into conversation at a convenient sort of chatting point, you know, like, yeah, yeah, enough about you and your boring life. Have you listened to the Partly Political broadcast yet? Or something like that. So uh, on to this week's show, uh, which features a chat with Andrew Smith at the campaign against the arms trade and uh, a terrible pun from me. I know, who'd have thought it? There is, of course, more Brexit fallout and I'm going to be looking at Libya, especially since David Cameron stopped bothering to do that by the end of 2011. But before all that, government ministers have given an appropriately green light to the nuclear power plant Hickley Point C, because there's no better way to provide the UK with cheap energy like causing all the people who think it's a shitty investment to heat up with outrage at a silly decision. There are many reasons why the government might have decided to finally go ahead with the project. Uh, it could be that several billion pounds have already been spent on it, so it's too costly to cancel. It could be that now EDF have revised down their shares and the government ministers didn't even mention China in their statement that the UK will be able to take a larger stake in it, which could be quite useful. Uh, it could be that, like all bad guys, the Conservatives just want some nuclear power in order to give strength to their terrible mutant Hulk soldiers when they block out the sun. Or it could be that several members of the EDF advisory board are also Conservative peers. I mean, it's unlikely, but it could be that. Uh, these include Lord Patton, who wrote an open letter to Theresa May in the Financial Times a few weeks ago, uh, asking her to definitely press ahead with Hinkley Point. Bit of a coincidence. And Simon Robertson, who pays £50,000 a year to be in an exclusive Conservative club so that he can have private dinners with the Prime Minister. Yeah, £50,000 just for dinner. I mean, someone is going all out with starters and desserts at Wagamama's, eh? So, with the cost of electricity from Hinkley set to cost consumers over twice the current wholesale price, and Hinkley itself costing taxpayers until 2060, you do sort of wonder if that money could have been better spent on renewable energy, a bit like I've said in previous weeks on this show. Still, at least a few Tory beers should be able to comfortably warm their homes by making a fire from all their excess £20 notes. And that's what's important. After being fired from the cabinet, former Chancellor George Osborne has announced that unlike his bladder-faced former boss, he's staying in politics to see how it ends. After doing such a terrible job with the economy, I really hope it's unhappily. Osborne is going to stay as chair of his Northern Powerhouse Partnership, which aims to help the great cities and towns of the North pool their strengths and take on the world. And after all the austerity measures brought in by Georgie, uh, meaning that 10 of the 12 most declining cities in the UK are in the north of England, pooling their strengths really might be the only way they'll be able to do anything. Thanks very much, George. Opponents of Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn have been criticising the left-wing group Momentum's new plans for Momentum Kids. Yes, that does sound like some sort of terrible exercise plan for children involving rolling them down large hills, but actually it's a proposal set up by two mums from Stroud to create better access to creches and childcare for Labour activists so that they can get engaged in political activities. And while that sounds like a pretty good idea to me, social media has been absolutely swamped with people saying Momentum Kids is like Hitler Youth, because, you know, linking Nazis and breakfast clubs for children is a fine way to bring up the German dictator. Uh, make sure someone tells that to Ken Livingston, eh? Fan of Jeremy Corbyn or not, helping parents to engage in more politics is surely what parties should be backing, isn't it? Or do you think they're just worried that these are the sort of people who have enough childishness to deal with already in their everyday lives? 
And the government has shelved plans to sell off the land registry, which is great news. Although on the downside, it does remove chances of being able to use the retort. No, it isn't. It's all being sold to private companies whenever bigots say Britain's our country. Arms dealers. The only people who are even more loathsome than gym going bros when they say, check out my gun show. Though bizarrely, if you remember, arms dealers was still a job that John Whittingdale thought was less embarrassing to do than, say, Tory MP when on a date. In actuality, Conservative MPs and weapons sellers often go, excuse the terrible pun, arms in arms. Last week, UK arms sales to Saudi Arabia were questioned in Parliament uh, after air attacks on Yemen uh, that may have possibly, well, pretty much almost definitely, have been using UK-made fighter jets, bombs and missiles and now seems to be completely in breach of international law. This comes after sales show that the UK is now the second biggest arms dealer in the world after the United States of America. And you start to realise that we really are a country that profits from the horrific suffering of others. And that's before you even get to including people who travel on EasyJet. This week, I spoke to Andrew Smith at Campaign Against the Arms Trade, a UK-based NGO that has been working since 1974 to abolish the international arms trade. And he explained to me what the reports were all about and why the government is so intent on making its terrible human rights records go global. Here's Andrew. Yesterday, there were two reports in Parliament uh, that were sort of lambasting the government for selling arms to Saudi Arabia. Um, in your opinion, were, were either good? Do you think either of them are going to make any difference? Well, actually, oddly, there was two and a half reports. What was quite strange was that on the Committee on Arms Export Controls, there's four different committees. Two of them agreed to a report that called for an end to UK arms sales to Saudi Arabia. One of them stopped short of that, saying that um, no ban should be brought in until after a court case, which is coming up next year. And the other one was a bizarre statement, which was released by the uh, Defence Committee to say that they wouldn't be making a statement. So that's kind of two and a half statements. Um, There were some things that were quite good about it, even about the one which disagreed with banning arms exports. What was good was that they rightly said that the... UN should do an independent investigation into the conduct of the bombing because until now the UK government's position has been that the UN shouldn't do this and that the best people to investigate if Saudi is violating international humanitarian law are the Saudi government. Now that always struck me as being a particularly odd argument because we're talking about a government which um, has an absolutely abhorrent human rights record. It has a contempt for human rights. And they struck me as being uniquely unqualified to assess whether or not they had violated international humanitarian law. So it was a step forward in suggesting that a brutal dictatorship should not be allowed to tell us if it's breaking the law or not. Yeah, it, I mean, it is, it is ridiculous when you put it like that, uh, that, that, that we're allowing that to happen at all. I mean, it's the to sort of summarise, the report is mainly saying that a, a lot of the cluster bombs we're selling, is that correct, uh, are possibly using to abuse uh, human rights in Yemen? Was that the main well, area they're being used? It, it's an odd one because there's issues about cluster bombs, which I think had, were actually sold in the 90s. and But that's kind of a sign of how long a weapon can last, because lifespan of a weapon is much longer than circumstances it's sold into. Um, but it's a kind of bizarre situation where even the UK government seems to accept the possibility that Saudi Arabia is committing war crimes. Their argument is that we're not using British weapons. Um, or at least it can't be proven we're using British weapons, so we should continue arming them until it's proven that they are. But we don't want an investigation unless it's done by Saudi Arabia, who will undoubtedly find that they're not. So the whole situation just seems to be trying to find any excuse possible to allow Saudi Arabia to continue bombing Yemen and to continue using UK weapons while it does so. So, I mean, why are we so, or why are the government so defensive about it? I mean, it was announced in the news uh, the other week that we're now the second biggest arms dealer in the world, I think, being beaten only by the US. Um, why has this become our biggest export? Well, unfortunately, Saudi Arabia has always carried a really large voice in the corridors of power. Um, you might remember in 2006, uh, there was a serious fraud office investigation into corruption and arms exports to Saudi Arabia. And that got cancelled by via a personal intervention by then Prime Minister Tony Blair. And it wasn't as if he was intervening 
because he didn't think there was any legal merit to the challenge. He accepted that there was. He said that it should be cancelled because it, would be, it wouldn't be beneficial to the relationship with Saudi Arabia and could be politically inconvenient. And so as soon as that happened, by coincidence, Saudi Arabia then began new negotiations with the UK to buy more fighter jets and ended up then signing a deal worth about £4 billion. So it appeared to be one of those cases of um, of kind of arms for political favours. Another example to give recently, actually, would be when it was revealed that it was UK civil servants who were lobbying to have Saudi Arabia on the UN Human Rights Council, which I think they ended up chairing, which would be such an utterly amusing, amusingly ironic appointment if it wasn't so utterly brutal in its uh, consequences. But it's the, these kind of things which mean that um, it's not just... It's not just military support that's given to Saudi, it's also a political one. What it sends out is the message that these are people the UK wants to do business with, these are people we can trust, these are good allies and this, that and the other. What it doesn't mention is that even the Economist Democracy Index, um, which is uh, run by The Economist uh, magazine, rates Saudi Arabia as the fifth most oppressive regime in the entire world. I think in terms of death penalty, it's uh, second only to Iran and China. We're talking about a country which doesn't even allow women the most basic of rights. And these are our so-called allies. Think about how low our expectations must be for our political enemies in that case. Yeah, that's really concerning. I mean, so is the main reason that we're keeping it with them, I'm guessing that's sort of the oil and, and the wealth in Saudi Arabia, is that why we want such a strong political relationship with them? Well, I think, I mean, there's two key points about Saudi Arabia, which is that it's sitting on a lot of oil, which it provides supposedly stable access to, but it also buys a lot of weapons. And it's not that it actually necessarily uses these. An interesting thing about Saudi foreign policy is it's not been particularly interventionist. But I think that when we're buying those weapons, a large part of it is about also buying influence and knowing that 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 just through sort of large-scale military deals seems to be enough to buy off Britain, the US, France and almost every other major arms manufacturer. And it does create this sort of bizarre situation of hypocrisy where the UK, in my mind, quite rightfully criticises Vladimir Putin and the uh, terrible abuses which are taking place in Ukraine and Russia. But at the same time, some, it says Vladimir Putin is beyond the pale, but somehow Saudi Arabia are good people we can work with. And it strikes me as being a reason, not necessarily being a fair interpretation of events. I think Vladimir Putin is beyond repeal, but I also think if he is, then Saudi Arabia most definitely is. Yeah, it's not a sort of either or situation. Uh, we could quite rightly say we won't work with either of them. Yeah, and certain message it sends out is human rights abusers are utterly terrible people unless they're our friends. Which, um, and it kind of treats human rights as being this sort of pick and mix type option where you can have a little bit of it here, a little bit, little bit of it there, expect a bit of it here, expect a bit of it there, but not necessarily take any kind of universal stand on it. Uh, do you think, is, is part of it as well the amount of money that it brings into British business then? If, it is, if we are the second biggest arms dealer in the world, is, is the, the kind of aid that it gives to our economy, is that, does that play a big part in it? Well, I think there's, I mean, there's two different aspects of that. The first one is... On the actual weapons themselves, roughly two-thirds are going to the Middle East. Um, and those are, in almost all cases, going to be going to regimes of appalling human rights record. So of the, set, of the arms export sector, it's disproportionately focused on the Middle East and the UK. Now, in terms of how big the arms, arms exports are in the UK economy, it's a, its importance is hugely overstated. Um, you're talking about a sector which provides roughly 0.2% of jobs in the economy. And yeah, yeah it's, it's my, and the number I'm using there is coming from uh, the ADS, which is the kind of trade body for arms companies. Um, so that's their figure. That's not ours. Um, it's about 50 to 60,000 jobs, depending on what year you're looking at the estimates for. Um, so it's not as if it's a sort of major employer. Um 
And yet it does carry a totally disproportionate voice in recorders of power. And it means that prime ministers do turn up at arms fairs and um, they do have an entire department of the civil service, UK TIDSO, although I think it's changing its name now that everything's being slightly rejigged. But that's 130 civil servants who exist for the sole purpose of promoting arms exports. And it's the kind of influence the arms companies have and the way that they've kind of increased their influence over foreign policy. And this isn't necessarily an access to power which other industries of a similar size would be getting. But our argument is that the reason the arms trade has so much influence and so much power is largely because of the political support it's been getting from the uh, support it gets from politicians. They need to be putting that support into greener, more sustainable industries and growing industries and promoting exports which are better which are better for arms, not just for Britain, but for the world as well. Because a key point to remember about arms exports um, from the UK is that even if a fighter jet leaves the UK and is licensed by the UK government, many of the parts in it aren't made in the UK. They're made all across Europe um, and then kind of put together. So the, so the actual value of arms exports isn't necessarily, isn't all even staying within the UK anyway. And when it is, it's going into the pockets of shareholders. So, sort of, uh, again, I know you vaguely covers this, but then I, I don't, uh, uh, naive as it may sound, I can't understand why politicians would be putting preference on arms rather than, say, renewable energy. And, and we've had that recently with the Trident thing as well, where they've said all mm. this money that we're spending on Trident renewing it could go to hospitals and schools and renewable energy. And they've said, no, it employs a thousand, couple of thousand people. So what's what's the benefit for MPs to do this? Well, yeah, I mean, with Trident, for example, you're looking at probably the least efficient job creation scheme in the world. It costs absolutely billions and means that effectively you could probably be paying everyone who's working on it about a million quid a year or something and still go back for profit. Um, it's If Trident was used as a job creation scheme, it would be an absolutely terrible one. Um, but I think for some MPs, if you're in a constituency which has a lot of people who work for arms companies in it, then obviously you want your constituents to keep your job. So I think that does influence uh, some MPs. Um, John Woodcock, for example, in Barrow, has a lot of BA systems workers there. So it's not necessarily surprising that he's one of the MPs who's most supportive of BAE systems, um, regardless of the atrocities which BAE systems um, weapons are, are involved in. Um, so I think that's the local dimension. I think on a kind of global stage, um, arms exports also work as a kind of a pawn in political games as well. And they're part of the political process. Um, and I think that to the UK, it seemed to be uh, almost a point of prestige. Bear in mind that the UK government is very proud of its status as one of the world's biggest arms dealers. Um, and is quite happy to show off about it at events like the Dicey Arms Fair, which happens in London every two years. So I think a large part of it is about that. Um, but it's also because it's an influence which has been there for so long. Um, I mentioned earlier that there's a arms export promotion body within the civil service. That's been there in some way, shape or form for, for 50 years now. So it's kind of it's a long-standing legacy as well. And also... A, a kind of a final point, I think an issue of transitioning away from that takes a lot of time, would take time and it would take uh, resources and it would um, take focusing on particular areas and that's not necessarily something which every government wants to be doing. Sure, I suppose in, in some ways it's much easier to say we'll bomb this place or we'll give weapons to this place rather than send in peacekeepers and try and negotiate some sort of better situation from it. Well, there's that aspect of it, but imagine if um, you are an MP for an area which has kind of a large a large number of arms trade workers, and then um, someone else is suggesting, well, why don't you set up kind of wind farms and this, that, and the other? These things are all pretty time-consuming, and you'd, you don't want the instability of all of that. You're much happier for them, business as usual to continue. Sure. Sure, of course. And then it requires investment as well in all the new stuff and the, the time it will take to build all of those. Oh, absolutely. So it's been a long term problem in the making. And um, there is always the argument which always gets wheeled out, which is a variation on if Britain didn't sell these weapons, France would or something like that. So, it, And that's one which you come across. There's, it's phrased in a slightly more sophisticated way now. It seems to be the government is 
always sending out messages now. It's real concern is that if com- if countries weren't buying UK bombs, they would buy them from Russia and they'd be less accurate. So really, it's a humanitarian thing to do. And this, that, and the other. It's these kind of uh, really pretty poor defences which are put up. Yeah, those, I mean, that's terrible. That's saying, well, if, if we're not killing these people, someone else will. And uh, But, I mean, that's odd, isn't it? You say that, that Britain are quite proud of our status that we're selling weapons, but that's not something you hear on sort of conservative manifestos, we'll kill more people around the world than anyone else. Or, you know, it's not something that we boast about in, in a very well, public way. Well, as promoting the strengths of British manufacturing or something <laughs> slightly less contentious. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's a key point there, which is that... Um, if world peace broke out tomorrow, then the first um, business to go, the, the first trade to go out of business would be the arms trade. Um, it is an industry which is entirely based on conflict and repression, or the possibility of conflict and repression. There's no other reason to be buying weapons other than to exacerbate a threat or to carry out an atrocity. Um, and it is that whole point whereby. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I, if, whereby, as long as there's instability, there will be arms companies that are looking to cash in on it. At the moment, two-thirds of British weapons are going to the Middle East, which is a very small region and already has far too many weapons in it. Sure. I mean, was, was that part of the... So sort of... I'm always aware, I think, quite cynically about everything. But when uh, the government made the decision to bomb Syria back in December, surely the fact that the bombs will cost a certain amount and that will be a certain amount of, of export, that must have been part of it. Um, well, I think with Syria, I think there's been all sorts of geopolitical considerations there. Because bear in mind, the UK position on Syria has kind of taken a 180-degree turn. It used to be the case that the government would work with uh, forces on the ground to topple Assad, whereas now it seems to be working with Assad to stop ISIS. And actually, it's one of those situations where you have got a terrible conflict, and Assad can't be Assad staying in power is power is a very bad thing for Syrian people. The only uh, forces worse than him are, argue, are arguably ISIS. So it's a terrible situation there. And I think there's geopolitical considerations which are coming into all of this. Um, but I can't imagine that um, the possibility of shifting more bombs was deemed a bad thing. Um, but certainly, UK foreign policy towards the Middle East for obviously for decades now has been pretty disastrous. Um, we've we have it's it's been interesting. The last couple of months, it's all been a bit unravelled. We saw the Chilcot report, which unfortunately left the news about two days after it was written, but it was a pretty damning indictment of. Blair's 13-year-long disaster in Iraq. And then the um, report which was written about Libya this week by the parliamentary group was very scathing. Um, UK foreign policy has been really getting a lot of criticism, even from some people at the heart of the UK establishment at the moment. 
yeah, it, it really doesn't seem our strong point at the moment post-referendum as well. <laughs> we don't seem no, to be no, pretty it's good. No, it's a bizarre time in politics in Britain because uh, the UK's status on the world stage is changing because of Brexit. Um, and that seems to be kind of at the moment, the expectation has to be this is going to be used as an excuse to push more weapons and things as a result because if the UK is going to have to rely more on UK-based industries, then you can imagine that's one which is going to find a lot of support in the corridors of power. But certainly the UK status is really coming under uh, pressure, coming on from a lot of directions. And you can't ignore the Scottish question either, the whole situation in Northern Ireland too. So actually the UK, which we're living in now in 10, 20 years' time, could be a very different country. We'll be back with Andrew in just a minute, but first... As days since he resigned as an MP go by, David Cameron's legacy as Prime Minister of the UK looks more and more like a list of Cards Against Humanity suggestions. Now to add to his CV to increase his chances of a decent job in hell, the Foreign Affairs Committee has said that swollen Hamface himself was responsible for failures that led to Libya becoming a failed state. Well done Dave! Maybe add that to your CV bit about being a team player. A little bit of background history for those of you who, like me, don't really know where Libya is and maybe thought Tripoli was a type of pasta. Libya is situated between Algeria and Egypt in a North African sandwich, and up until 2011, when he was overthrown by NATO forces, uh, it was ruled by eccentric dictator, revolutionary and poor Gene Simmons lookalike, Colonel Muhammad Gaddafi. He wasn't the most stable of human beings, Gaddafi, with reports after his death stating that he did things like keep his enemies' heads in the freezer, which, to be fair, would definitely put me off getting a midnight snack of ice cream far more than any possible diet scheme. Colonel Gaddafi's draconian laws and funding of militant and terrorist groups all over the world, plus his consistently outspoken views against imperialism and the UN, meant that he was really not on many of the Western world's BFFs lists, and why would he be when popping around to grab an ice cream had such terrifying consequences? Anyway, long story short, when the Arab Spring hit Libya, NATO backed rebels who wanted to oust the leader they'd had no say in having since 1975. Tripoli fell and Colonel Gaddafi went into hiding before being killed in as yet unconfirmed circumstances. Which does mean, yes, it's very likely he'll probably return in Avengers Infinity War. While Colonel Gaddafi's death was seen as an end to 42 years of misrule, since then Libya has been plunged into the verges of civil war, economic collapse, a humanitarian crisis, the spread of Gaddafi regime weapons across North Africa, and the growth of ISIS. And a large part of that seems to be the blame of one, yes, you've guessed it, David Cameron. Well, him and the other NATO countries that intervened, particularly France, at the time under the rule of Nicolas Sarkozy. The Foreign Affairs Committee has gathered evidence from senior ministers and defence staff at the time and found that there were issues in the way that the UK government opted to change the primary objective from protecting civilians in the city of Benghazi to regime change, something that anyone who's lived under a Conservative government won't be surprised by at all. It seems the operations were then carried out using as little evidence as possible and a complete lack of investigation into the rebellion that was happening in Libya. And as a result, at least 30,000 Libyans, many of whom were civilians, were killed. Then, post-Gaddafi's death, NATO said they would end operations by 31st of October 2011, but the Libyan government that were put in place asked that they stay until the end of the year in order to help rebuild and repair the country properly. But NATO soundly ignored that because, hey, the blowy up bit is all done, let's go get a beer and leave these dicks to clean up our mess. And they pissed off at the end of October anyway. The UK spent under half as much on rebuilding Libya as it did on the intervention, and none of the European countries really bothered to help restabilise Libya post-Qaddafi, leaving it to become in the mess that it's in now. US President Barack Obama said getting involved in Libya was one of his greatest regrets, saying he assumed the UK, France and other Europeans would have more investment in the follow-up to the war and calling them free riders. Overall, Obama said actually that the war was a shit show, and I guess he would know coming from a country that has Sean Hannity's show on Fox News. The Foreign Affairs Committee report asks that the Foreign Office now conduct a review into whether the United Nations and NATO are in fact the correct body to coordinate stabilisation and reconstruction in a post-conflict environment, as judging by Libya, they definitely aren't, and it could well happen again. And the funny thing is, as for Dave, uh, well... David Cameron just refused to give evidence to the select committee for this report, and now he's not an MP, he's just swanned off and left it all behind like his daughter in a pub. David Cameron causing a shit show and then leaving others to clean it up? Now where have I heard of that happening before? Hmm. And now, back to Andrew. 
So do you think that because of all that now is a really good time to to challenge uh, our arms industry? I know you're saying um, uh, earlier to me before the interview that the uh, campaign against arms trade, you've got a court case uh, about the uh, government selling arms to Saudi Arabia. Is now a right time to kind of be doing doing that? I think absolutely. And the reason why right now is very important isn't so much because of the UK situation on the world stage. It's more to do with the fact that right now people in Yemen are dying. Schools are being destroyed. Hospitals are being destroyed. And UK arms are central to that bombardment. The UK government has been complicity, has been complicit in that destruction. It has provided not just military support, but also political support and political cover to one of the most brutal dictatorships in the world while it is bombing one of the poorest countries in the world. And to me, that's an injustice which has to be challenged because these arms exports aren't just immoral, they're also illegal. UK arms export criteria is actually, on paper, it's very clear. It says that if there's any clear risk that UK arms might be used to violate international humanitarian law, then that arms sale shouldn't go ahead. It's obvious there's a clear risk in Yemen because the UN has said that Saudi is violating international humanitarian law and provided countless examples. Human Rights Watch has done the same. Amnesty International has done the same. Um, and Oxfam has done the same. Almost every single reputable NGO which has people on the ground in Yemen has accused Saudi forces of violating international humanitarian law. If that doesn't provide a clear risk, then I don't know what will. So, no, I mean, it seems incredibly obvious. Um, I mean, it, actually, just um, before I ask you more about the court case, it is an interesting thing you're saying we've been discussing a lot of the politics about it but obviously the, the most important thing is that people are dying because of this um do you feel there's maybe uh you know because obviously i know about uh the campaign against the arms trade and uh oxfam and a number of the groups that you mentioned but it's not something that appears in the news often enough do you think people are almost desensitized to the atrocities it's causing because they're far away? Are we getting too much news about awful things everywhere? You know, it, this always feels to me like something that people should be I just um, I don't want to use the word up in arms. That's the wrong term for this chat. But, you know, people should <laughs> be hugely angry about this. The amount of time you know. described in headlines yeah. as up in arms. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I feel, I feel like people should be more uh, angry about this, that the country we live in is helping to kill people illegally. That's horrific. Well, we're, ne we're never angry, we're always up in arms, but, um, no, I, I think it ha specifically the intervention in Yemen, I think that has been getting a lot more attention uh, recently. Now, unfortunately, as it's been going on for 18 months and has created a humanitarian catastrophe, and we would rather that wasn't the criteria for widespread news coverage of the arms trade. Um, but it, there are a lot of journalists who I think have done a very good job over this issue. Uh, in particular, and it does seem to be getting more public interest. And whenever what's been interesting is whenever polling has been done on this, it's always found that roughly about two-thirds of the country is against arms exports to human rights abusers. Um, and only about 10% ever say that they're in favour of them. Um, and that's the same 10% which seems to say that the UK should be allowed to sell weapons to anyone it wants in the entire world. So we know that public opinion is on side. And there is a growing parliamentary opposition specific in relation to Yemen in particular because the Labour front bench and most of the Labour backbench, um, which used to be the front bench, has um, all come out against this. Um, Hillary Benn's spoken very well against UK arms exports to Saudi, but so has Emily Thornberry, who's now filling his role. Um, so actually the Labour Party's been very united on this. So has the SNP who've come out very strongly against this. So has um, the Liberal Democrats as well, who've come out very strongly. And even a lot of um, backbenchers in the Conservative Party have as well. So there does appear to be a growing political consensus. The only people who seem to be objecting to it are the Saudi Arabian monarchy and Boris Johnson. So it does seem like there is a growing opposition and that needs to, that needs to continue, that needs to be strengthened. But I think there are certainly encouraging signs. Yes, no, definitely, definitely, and and um, so tell tell me more about your the the court case that the campaign against the arms trade uh, are making. Well, this is a court case based on the argument that UK arms exports to Saudi for use in Yemen are in violation of UK and EU arms export law, um, and even though 
the UK may have a particularly strange relationship with the EU at the moment, we are still bound by it. Um, our argument is that this is in contravention of the UK and EU law. Um, and we won the right to a judicial review. Um, we won it in at a hearing at the High Court in June, uh, in July, sorry, at the end of July. Um, and this will be the first of its kind. It's going to be a three-day-long judicial review which will take place um, at, towards the end of January next year. And that's going to really put these the arms exports under scrutiny. It's going to challenge the government's legal basis for them. We are calling for a immediate suspension of all arms exports decided for use in Yemen, uh, while the UK uh, calls for an independent investigation into whether or not um, these weapons have been used in violation of international humanitarian law. And we have no doubt that they have been. What was interesting in the reports which were published yesterday, the one which got signed off, the, well, the first of the, three, of the two and a half reports, um, the first one made the point that it's inevitable if human rights abuses are being carried out, if violations of international humanitarian law are being carried out by Saudi forces, then it's inevitable British weapons will be part of that. Um, yeah, and it's and it's one of those points where because UK weapons have been so key to the Saudi Arabian Air Force for so long, because it's British fighter jets that are flying overhead, it's Eurofighter, um, and it's also UK bombs, it's Paveway 4 bombs, which are being used a lot as well. And these have been specific. These bombs have been linked by Human Rights Watch to specific attacks on specific civilian targets. So there's absolutely no doubt about the level of complicity which has taken place throughout the last eighteen months. So we're challenging this, and it's going to judicial review next January. As far as we are aware, this is the first time UK arms exports have ever been scrutinised in this way. So I think it's going to be a very important three days. Um, it's going to take place in front of two judges. Um, we would hope it's open to public so your listeners can hopefully go along to the uh, viewing gallery as well. Um, but at that point, I think it's not just going to be revealing things about the specific arms exports to Saudi, but also actually UK foreign policy and the relationship which the UK government enjoys of the Saudi regime. And I think these things will will almost all be discussed as part of it because it is very related and the... UK arms trade of Saudi happens because it has a great deal of support and complicity from the UK government. It couldn't ha possibly happen without it. That sounds um, sort of what I think will be fascinating. And all the very best with it, and I I, uh, I hope it goes very well. But I think even uh, should the worst happen, and but the the, the information that will be revealed during the trial will surely uh, kind of uh, open up many cans of worms. Well, we'd certainly expect so. I mean, obviously, we are hoping for um, a positive result to come from it, but we are talking. But if we're picking political enemies, then the UK government, the Saudi Arabian government, and multi-billion-pound arms companies are obviously pretty big political enemies. Um, and I have no doubt they will be throwing the kitchen sink at trying to discredit us. Um, so I think it is going to be a very interesting process um, and one which, if UK arms export laws mean anything and they are worth the paper which we're printed on, then these arms exports need to be stopped. So that's going to be end of January uh, and listeners should definitely look out for that. And what... Um what uh, sort of I try and finish these interviews actually I mean that's quite a positive way to finish this one normally we end with going oh everything's quite bleak how miserable um but um that's a your court case is definitely uh, a very uh, positive uh, hopefully ending to this but what can the listeners do if they are interested uh in tackling the arms trade and finding out more information about uh kind of what's going on in Yemen what obviously they can look at the campaign against arms trade's website uh, and all your campaigns is there anywhere else they should be looking up? Is there anything they should be doing? Well, we've got a number of local groups throughout the country, the details of which are on the website as well. We've got a separate universities group as well, um, which is working with university societies across the country. Um, and they're always looking for new members and to take part in kind of local actions. Um, we've also got different um, actions which can be taken to lobby MPs. And I think it's really important that people do what they're comfortable with. Not everybody wants to be sitting in front of a 
um, the queue of vans outside and on the road outside in arms fair. But some people take some people um, protest against that way. Some people write a letter to their MP. Uh, we would urge everyone to do whatever we're comfortable doing. Um, and to look at CAT website, we've, there's also an awful lot of very good NGOs we would recommend who've done work in similar areas, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and Oxfam are all groups that we work with regularly. Um, and there is an, there's an awful lot of information out there. And I think one of the issues is that there's so much information out there. And sometimes it can feel so vast and sometimes it can feel like such a big challenge. And that's where I think that... The, the legal case next, the legal challenge, the legal case next January is going to be critical because this is this. I think it's kind of a focal point because it embodies a lot of the things which are despicable and deplorable about the arms trade and about the way the UK is operated, not just in the Middle East but around the world. And I think it's going to provide a very, very important um, kind of moment in this, and it could set a historical precedent. Fantastic. I hope it does. Big thanks to Andrew for talking with me this week and thanks to Partly Political Helper Matt Hoss for arranging it. Much appreciated. Uh, you can find Campaign Against the Arms Trade on their website, caat.org.uk, uh, with full details of local groups all over the UK. Uh, and I'm sure they're going to have continuous updates on the court case when it starts too. Uh, you can also find Campaign Against the Arms Trade on Twitter at caatuk and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash campaign against the arms trade. Also, one of the many reasons I started doing comedy about politics uh, was due to the amazing comedian uh, and sometime mentor Mark Thomas. Uh, and in particular, having a chat with Mark after seeing his show as used on the famous Nelson Mandela a few years ago. Uh, and that show was all about the arms trade. It is a, a few years old now, but his book is still definitely worth a read if you get a chance. And incredibly, Mark manages to make you laugh despite the bleak reality of the weapons trade, which would normally make you cry. As always, I'm very keen to hear who you'd like me to interview uh, or on what subjects I should find someone to interview about. Uh, do drop me a line or, you know, some sort of text as a line is quite hard to interpret sometimes. Uh, obviously, as always, uh, it's at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Parpolbro Facebook group or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. After the double conference weekend, I asked you lot what stalls or talks you'd have expected to see at either the UKIP or Liberal Democrat conferences, and a handful of you replied. Rick B, or at 10% on Twitter, uh, said, uh, this is a talk for both conferences, uh, maintain your income by keeping an irrelevant party going, uh, and some of the stalls could be offshore wealth management and saga retirement. Nice, I think saga retirement particularly applying there to UKIP. At John Beck, he says, uh, fuck their policies, a live rap by Tim Farron discussing the differing views of the Lib Dems and the UKIP. Uh, that is a reference to, um, apparently, uh, Tim Farron's phone went off during a meeting and it played NWA's Fuck the Police because his kids had changed it. Look at that. Even his kids don't like him. Uh, at Andy Walker 9 uh, says the Lib Dems have Norman Lamb's one-man tour de force. No, really, it's fine that Tim won. Um, at Flizzy Rascal uh, says uh, they could go for, and I'm assuming this is Lib Dems, uh, how to lose votes and alienate literally everyone. Uh, at Brendan Hope has gone for um, a Lib Dem talk on subject. Was forming a coalition with Tories a vote winner? It's a four-word talk. Of course fucking not. Um, and uh, at, uh, this is a ridiculous Twitter name, uh, unless it's an Android, in which case, apologies Android, uh, it's at GG7088 Um They have sent in, which is very good for an Android, uh, UKIP's, poilin, uh, the, UKIP's Poison Chalice Leadership Drink Stall and Lib Dem's Farron Wilderness Tour Talks, The Search for Voters. And long will it continue. If you want to take part in giving an answer for part of the question, I post them up on our Twitter and our Facebook every single week. Just throw your answers under there. There'll be a new one next Sunday. Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Quick Brexit update if such a thing is possible. Herman Van Rompuy, a man whose name sounds like a sort of terrible carry-on character, and Donald Tusk, a man whose surname sounds like he's always disappointed in your cheap jokes about Herman Van Rompuy's name, both of whom are on the European Council, uh, have said that Brexit talks are likely to happen in 2017 by January or February, after a talk that they had with Theresa May. However, Prime Minister Theresa May has denied that she ever specified a date, because who knows, if she holds it off long enough, the world might have ended by that time and she won't have had to bother making a decision. 
In the meantime, Jean-Claude Juncker, European Commission President, uh, has almost brought true what the British tabloids made us fear were we have to remain. Uh, he has proposed a EU military headquarters for a common military force in complement to NATO. Uh, of course, the bonus of this, I guess, if he does set up one giant EU army, uh, is that Theresa May could just do something to piss them off. They'll have to invade us, uh, and then it'll be another way of saving her having to trigger Article 50. As you know, the EU army take over and inflict decent air quality controls on us and efficient hairdryers. Yet another fear that's been mentioned in the last few days is that a hard Brexit would mean UK banks would lose the automatic right to trade in EU states, or passporting rights as they're known. But while it would cost banks some of the money that they keep getting from the Bank of England's magic money tree that they swear doesn't exist, Moody's rating agency says that banks would actually manage having their passporting rights taken away. So, banks having a slightly harder time, possibly having to regulate more and losing money? I mean, using that as a case against a hard Brexit is like saying you shouldn't press a button as it will open a trapdoor underneath Piers Morgan, causing him to plummet into a pit of snakes. Yes, I'll be pressing that button twice then, thanks. So, hard or soft, we still don't know when or how we'll be Brexiting, and don't hold your breath for any answers soon, unless you have really bad hiccups. And that's the end of this week's slightly briefer, partly political broadcast. Uh, Probably be back to normal length next week. Uh, But thanks again for listening in. And please, please, please do review the show on iTunes or I will play that shitty jingle again. Uh, As always, you can get in touch via all the usual methods uh, or perhaps unusual methods uh, if you know a way of doing an incantation so that uh, a message burns in blood on the walls of my flat. Then go for it. I always like a surprise. Uh, And if you do enjoy the show, uh, then you can buy my new stand-up special, The World's Full of Idiots, Let's Live in Space, for three from my website tianandduyeb.co.uk it is over an hour of jokes and has one terrible terrible pun in it I know who'd have thought Uh, special thanks this week to Mark Struthers for sound magic uh, Matt Hoss for guest wrangling and Steve Spicer for making the at Bro Twitter account a bit better Uh, This week's show was brought to you by the letters L and D for Liberal Democrats and the number 8, which on its side looks like the infinity sign, which is the least amount of time it will take for the Liberal Democrats to get back into government. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.